Well, good morning again. Good to see you here on this beautiful Sunday morning. I am Rick Gleiman. For those of you who don't know me or maybe don't remember me, I've been away on a sabbatical for nine weeks, covering some of January, all of February, and part of March. And I'm so glad to be back in worship with you here this morning. As we dive into our scripture text for today, I'm going to invite us together to really pray, not say a prayer, but to actually get in touch with the Jesus who spoke these very words we're going to consider, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Because if Jesus were here on the earth today, if this was his first coming, we know we're expecting his second coming, I am confident he would say these exact things, maybe slightly different terminology, but he'd say the same things because this is the eternal word of God. And it is living and it is active and it is powerful for us today, just as powerful as it was for those who heard it in the first century. So let's invite Jesus, who's present in our hearts. He's here in our midst as we worship. We can feel his presence now. Let's invite him to guide us in our understanding of his holy word today. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you came to this earth for us, and we thank you that you gave us the truth that could set us free and guide us into real relationship with your heavenly Father. We ask you this morning that as we open our hearts and our minds and hear your word, that you'll give us the same power of your Holy Spirit that I know fell on those first hearers. You'll give them the ability, by your grace alone, to fulfill these things in their lives. We ask you for these things. Praise you now for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around for the last several weeks, you know that we are in the middle, the third segment of a new teaching series, a preaching series called The Attitudes. It's a sermon series on the Beatitudes, as we call them, the first several verses of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus gave us all kinds of truths and life-changing uh, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to focus on one verse today, and that is, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to look at it, take a deep dive into that today. We've talked about already, blessed are the poor in spirit, the first Sunday in the series, and then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those are stepping stones which lead us to this teaching. Each of these Beatitudes, there's nine of them, by the way, we're going to take a look at just one today, are essential keys to understanding the kingdom of God and entering into the very throne room of God and learning how to live in God's world. We call this God's world. It's the earth he gave for us to live in. But God lives in an uncreated world that he himself dwells in. And he's trying to equip and prepare us to live there forever. Because guess what? Going to heaven means being where God is forever. And that's what Jesus has bought for us. So we're going to look at four things today. We're going to take a look at how the Beatitudes fit in the overall structure of the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, we're going to take a look at what the word blessed or blessed means. I know each of the preachers have preceded me in this series of taking a crack at that. We're going to talk about that again because it's a word that we need to understand. Jesus, again, used it nine times. Some of you Ferris Bueller fans remember nine times? No, forget that imagery. Think about Jesus. We're also going to try and go a deeper dive into understanding what Jesus meant when he said the word meek. I know, I'll just be up front. When I was growing up, there was no point along the way that I was motivated to, taught to, or instructed, or guided to become meek, okay? That just wasn't the guidance I got. We didn't take classes in kindergarten or, or eighth grade or high school or even college on how to be meek because it wasn't a value in the culture that we lived in then. It certainly isn't now. But Jesus puts this prominently 
as a number three thing in this lineup of nine Beatitudes. It's that important. And so we're going to take a look at what he really means by this. And then we're going to look at, lastly here today, what in the world does Jesus mean that the meek will inherit the earth? Aren't we going to heaven someday? Aren't we in this earth getting thrown away? But he says that they will actually inherit the earth. So I come back to this again. The Sermon on the Mount itself is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then probably another time he preached a similar or the same sermon echoed in Luke's gospel. It's only a 15-minute read. Probably many of you read it many times because Matthew happens to sit in the beginning of the New Testament, which if you've gotten motivated to read the Bible and start with the New Testament or asked, where should I start? We'll start with Matthew. And so you read along, somehow got through the genealogies. And if you kept reading, you got to Matthew chapter 5 and you've read over this probably a dozen times. And then maybe your Bible reading plan for that year dwindled down by the time you got to Matthew 10 or somewhere in John and you stopped, but then you started over again. We know this passage very, very well. But I want you to get a parallel in your mind. Many years prior to this, there was another significant mountaintop experience that someone had, and that person was Moses. The Bible speaks of Moses being the meekest man in the world at that time. And in that structure, God took one man up on a mountain. Everyone else stayed at the base of the mountain. They were not allowed near it, in fact, lest they be destroyed by God. But God called one man to the top of this mountain, kept him there for 40 days and 40 nights, and gave him the Ten Commandments plus the law, that Moses brought down that basically pointed out to the people of Israel why they would never get to heaven. What was wrong with them? That was the purpose of the law. The New Testament reveals it. They were never going to be able to keep it, but God said, this is what I'm giving to you, Moses, to bring down to the people. It wasn't good news. It was summed up in Ten Commandments with Moses in his lack of meekness at that moment, broke the first time because he had quite a temper that God tempered over time. But the parallel here is now God himself coming out of heaven all the way down to the earth, becoming a human being, and now inviting everyone to come up the mountainside with him, which pictures him coming to save all of us through his work. An entirely different paradigm. Now Jesus is saying, because I'm here, because I'm going to pay the price for your sins and open the door to relationship with God, now I'm not pushing you away or saying somehow you can't get in. I'm going to show you the way into the presence of God to get to the place where you can live in the presence of God on a regular basis and grow up into a relationship with him that'll last forever. Totally different understanding what Jesus brought to us. And there's nine keys here. We're going to focus on one today, but I think these build upon one another. But the primary thing that the Sermon on the Mount is it's a call to change. Not just to change what we think or what we believe, because that would just be a philosophy, but to change who we are and that's where it gets really difficult, isn't it? It's one thing to learn a bunch of platitudes. It's one thing to memorize scripture. It's one thing to actually get to know all the books of the Bible and all the characters. And some of you are probably experts in Bible trivia. You know all the different facts. But the fact is, what the hard part is, is actually changing, actually becoming more like Jesus. So while the Sermon on the Mount is a 15-minute read, it takes a lifetime to grow up into all of these things. That's the process of maturation or transformation that all of us are part of. These scriptures are so vital to have. If you're looking to get more spiritual traction, if you're not sure, you're wandering, you're kind of off track spiritually right now, or you just want another shot in the arm, the Sermon on the Mount is a place to start because you'll get it. Jesus will say at the end of this brief sermon, this 15-minute sermon, he will say, those who hear th these words of mine, meaning those 
that passage in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, key phrase, will be like a wise builder who builds their life on a rock-solid foundation. And no matter what life throws at you, the storms are going to come, the wind's going to beat against it, but that house will stand. That's a powerful promise. There's a lot packed into this Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take a focus on one aspect of this. But the reality is, if we think somehow we can just glaze over these, I've read this before. Yeah, that meek stuff. What? I mean, like I said before, who, who wants to be meek anyway? Let's just skip over that. It's much like when we aren't aware of a physical condition until we go to a doctor. And some of you have been to a doctor and, and maybe I'm be very sensitive, maybe recently got a diagnosis that really alarmed you or awakened you. And maybe they said to you, there's something with your heart that we need to check out. And immediately a sense of fear and immediately a sense of, mm, uh-oh, I better do something about this. Or maybe you've actually had a heart attack and survived. And now the doctor has given you a rehab plan and guess what? You're really serious about it. So all that stuff about changing your diet and having a different exercise program and, and getting fresh water and fresh air and doing the different things that you were just kind of been ignoring all this time, all of a sudden now it matters because your life depends upon it. Well, Jesus is the great physician and he, as he spoke these words, was looking upon the heart condition of the human race. And all of us have serious blockages in our hearts as we grow up in this sinful world and the sinfulness that's within us, which he, as the great physician, prescribes the solution. This is strong medicine. It's difficult sometimes to take, but all of it will change us permanently and it will cure our spiritually sick condition. But again, we don't always realize how out of shape we are. I remember back when I was 21 years old, um, I was invited to be part of a team that was going down to Bogota, Colombia, to work with orphan children on the streets of that great big city. There's thousands of them. We we're going to work with about 30 or 40 of them in this particular area. They were homeless, effectively. They had this sort of a, an area where they slept at night. And we went down there. And the very first day, one of the things we wanted, or they wanted us to do is you know, get to know these kids, spend some time with them. So we get down there, and the first day they wanted to go play soccer. So just let me introduce the notion that Bogota, Colombia is 8,500 feet up to begin with. And these kids lived right there, and they upped this mountain called Montserrat. If you've ever been to Bogota, it sits towers above the city even further, about 10,000 feet up. But halfway up that mountain where they took us to play this soccer game is this verdant green field, and you look over the city, and I was just worn out just walking up to the, the top of that 9,000-foot playing area. And we played soccer or something like that for two hours, or they did anyway. I was gassed in about five minutes. I was not equipped or prepared to function in that rare air. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount. You guys may think you're spiritual. You may think you're ready for heaven. You might Heaven is just an address you get someday. No, heaven's a place that's real. And you're not ready for this yet, but I want to help you get there by telling you the truth. So the Beatitudes is Chuck's Swindoll put it this way so powerfully, are not sentimental platitudes. They're a frontal challenge to the way we think things are in the world. The Beatitudes offer a radical rearrangement of the ordinary system of life. They cut across the very grain of our lifestyle. So if we take these Beatitudes in our life for real, we will be profoundly impacted and become deeply committed Christians almost immediately because they build upon one another. 
They address the way we think. They address the way we live. They address the way things we say and treat other people and even the feelings that we entertain. So let's define a couple of the words. Let's look at the word blessed once again here today. The biblical word for blessed in this context is makarios, which simply means, in my best understanding of it, is to be in the position where God constantly has his hand upon your life at every moment, to be in the place of favor with God Almighty. Remember the counterposed position of the Old Testament people, the best of the best, always were kept far away from God? God, Jesus introduced the notion that through these practices, these spiritual values, that we can stay in a place of God's endorsement, a place of him continuously showing favor to our lives. I love the way the Amplified Bible, if you don't have one, you should get one. It just so powerfully captures things. It says it this way, the same verse. Blessed, happy, blithesome, joyous, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions. That was the word blessed. <laughs> Are the meek, the mild, patient, long-suffering, for they shall inherit the earth. That sounds like a great place to be. Wouldn't you want to live knowing that God was smiling over you and because of you at every moment of your life? And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us into. Instead of that terrible cycle of trying really hard, feeling once in a while like we're, we're getting someplace spiritually, only to disappoint God and fall down again and constantly be in this cycle of confession of sin and, and constantly feeling terrible about ourselves, Jesus, I'm going to show you how to break that cycle. Yes, I, I know you're sinners, but I'm going to help you transform that. But then he says this word meek. I guarantee you the hearers in the first century did not want to hear that from Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah. He was going to come and powerfully deliver them from Rome, and they'd have their nation back under their own domain. He was going to rally an army. Whatever they thought of him, this was the opposite. Blessed are the meek, and he defines it this way. First of all, this meekness, so we remove all confusion, does not mean being namby-pamby. It does not mean like obsequious and having no inability to make decisions and just shadowy creature crawling along the earth. That might be the notion some of us had what meekness may be. In fact, Jesus, who modeled this because it was his character, he was meek. He supplanted Moses as the meekest person that ever lived. He was lowly and gentle. People liked to be around Jesus. His friends, his disciples, people, crowds followed him because what he said attracted them to him. He was gentle and kindly and listened deeply when people talked to him. He was so different that they went away amazed. Who is this? But the quality that they believe they're attracted to most was, in fact, his meekness. William Barclay put it this way about a meek person. He said, Oh, the bliss of the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who has every instinct and impulse and passion under control because he himself is God-controlled, who has the humility to realize his own ignorance and his own weakness, for such a man is a king among men. Now, that's a really loose translation of this principle, but that's powerful to understand. It's having the passions the drives and the capacities that God has given to us under control. And not by abrogating them or blocking the human spirit, the creativity God has given to us, but having them guided by the Holy Spirit and released to their fullest capacity. 
So I want you to hear this. The true significance of the biblical word meek, I believe, is this. It's an attitude of heart and of mind for which there's really no other single word. And it's an attitude which is a secret of true success in our walk with God. It's a combination of open-mindedness, having a continuously teachable spirit, a true, not false humility, humble attitude, a really strong faith in God and trust in him so much that we trust God actually more than we trust ourselves. And I want you to hear this. It's, it's to say God, we have God confidence, not self-confidence. And the realization, which is a big thing for most of us, that the will of God for us is always going to be something that's really, really good. It's most fulfilling, most meaningful. It'll have real purpose. It will be vital. And it's much better than anything we could think of for ourselves. I want to say the last phrase again. God, your Father in heaven, his plan and his will for your life is much better than you could ever think up for yourself. I'm not sure that's how you grew up in your walk of faith, thinking that way about God. I kind of grew up with this concern that God might force me or make me or push me to do things I didn't want to do or go places I didn't want to go. Like, go to Africa. And I'm like, I don't want to do Then go to Siberia. Oh, then go to Mongolia. No, I don't want to do that. I was afraid God was going to push me or make me do something I didn't want to do. In fact, God has all the plans in the world, and he has good intentions for our life, so much so that Jeremiah, the prophet, back in chapter 29, says this, and God speaking in the first person, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you, a hope, give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and then I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's heart is burgeoning with so much love for us that his plans and his steps of the righteous are ordered to the Lord. He's already made them for your life. The minute we move from trusting ourself and our self-confidence to God-confidence and let him lead us, when we allow the will of God to come about in whatever way God's divine wisdom chooses and considers to be best, rather than some particular way that we have chosen for ourselves and that we have under our control. That's the transition from pride to meekness. Meekness actually believes that God's smarter than us. Now, that shouldn't be a hard one, that he's wiser than us, that he who created us in his own image would know how to us, for us to best live life. But we find that so hard because we don't want to give up control. We feel like we're going to do a little better job than God. A.W. Tozer captured it this way. The meek person is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. Let me illustrate this will of God thing a little bit for you another way. Many years ago, when my daughter Julie, who's now 32 years old and has given us three wonderful grandchildren, when she was a little one and I would come home from work in those days, I loved to take out the bike and put her in the baby seat behind me in the evenings in the spring and summer when it was nice out. Like it'll be someday here again. I don't know when that's going to happen. But it was a highlight of my day to do that. So we'd ride around our little neighborhood there and sometimes go across the path over to Bruce Lake, 
off of Plainfield where we lived in those days. And, and they had a little playground there with rusted out playground equipment, nothing fancy, a small slide. But to my daughter, this was a wonderland. She thought it was great. When she was getting close to the age of four, maybe three and a half, four years old, I thought, you know, it's time to introduce Julie to a different park. So for those of you who know what this park is, McCollum Park in Downers Grove is a wonderland. It's acres and acres of, of just like heaven for kids. So the first night I decided to take her over there, I said, Julie, I'm going to take you over to a new park. I don't want to go to a new park. I want to go where we always go. I said, we're going to go to McCollum Park. I don't want to go to McCollum Park. And I said, they've got miniature golf there. I don't want to play miniature golf. She'd never heard of miniature golf. She didn't know what it was. So we took the drive, and she pretty much cried all the way over there, kind of kicking and screaming. And then we got to the park, and her eyes got this big. She goes, oh, this is great. So we played miniature golf, and then we never went to the junky old park anymore. We went to McCollum Park. That's what God has in mind for us, if we'll just let him take us there. How many times are we kicking and screaming, digging our heels, and God's trying, just, come on, let me, let me help you take this step. It's a little scary, but let me help you take it. Oh, back to that story about Bogota. That was me. I didn't want to go on that trip. There was four people going. They needed a fifth. They needed another guy to go to balance the team. I didn't speak Spanish much then, um, but they needed me to go, and I did it a sheer act of obedience. And I was literally, my skid marks and my heels were all the way to the airport. I was just, I don't want to do this, God. I don't, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm content in ministry here. I've got a great ministry here. I'm finishing my college. I've got a great job. And I just, I said, okay, I'll do this. Well, the moment I got there, I understood. I understood. God took me to a new dimension. It was a wonderful experience with him. And by the way, in that process, I learned to speak Spanish fluently, which many years later, God, the smart one, knowing he used me to start a Spanish church. It's still flourishing to this day, Spanish-speaking church. God has a big plan for our lives. Sometimes it's the little steps that he's trying to nudge us into. So start to believe and expect good, better than you can think of yourself, instead of being afraid. The meek person is wise enough to know that about God's plans. Why is this so? Well, Jared Packer put it this way. Those who are meek, that is, prepared to forego their rights in this world, if that's what God requires of them, will inherit the earth, they will be made infinitely rich in the future. I think the best scripture we can consider here today, and I'm going to use this later as part of our application, is 1 Corinthians 13. Second to the Sermon on the Mount and passages like the 23rd Psalm, 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the most known passages. Why? Because you've heard it a hundred times at weddings. It defines love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is, it describes it in verses 4 through 7. And I'm going to encourage you to hear it this way because I do believe that word for love there is describing Jesus' character completely. And Jesus calls us as to become meek. We can insert that word, the meek are these things. So here, that translation that I have come up with, not an official translation of the Bible. I'm not changing the Bible. This is applying this principle. But the meek are very patient and kind. They're never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. The meek do not demand their own way. And meek ones are not irritable or touchy. They do not hold grudges and will hardly even notice when others do them wrong. Meek people are never glad about injustice, but they rejoice whenever truth wins out. The meek will be loyal no matter what the cost. Friends, I want you to hear those words and let them resonate. That's where Jesus is trying to take all of us into his character, into his attitude. And oh, did I say this? None of this stuff comes naturally to us. 
These are not human, natural human traits. Most of us think a lot differently than this and act and live out in our lives and our relations with a whole different attitude. We see the flaws in our character so often come out in our relationships instead of the strengths we'd wish to see. You can sum it up this way. The meek are those with the kind of inner strength much stronger than we'd ever imagine them to be that avoids pursuing vengeance and fostering hatred. The meek are the wise people who overlook the transgressions of others despite being deeply hurt. So friends, Jesus says to those who are meek, that kind of attitude, going with God where God leads them is a place to be. It's the path to blessing. And there's one step that all of us need to take. Many of you have taken this already in your life. Some maybe have never really taken this step. And that's saying a simple thing to Jesus. It starts with us bowing our knee to him and saying, Lord, I yield my will to you. I yield my life to you. I've known about you. I've been around church all my life. I've been playing with Christianity to some degree, but I haven't changed that much. I need something to change in me. And I realize it's because I've been at the helm of my life and my soul and my thoughts and my attitudes and my spirituality instead of letting you be the Lord inside of me. Come in my life, Lord Jesus, and take control. I yield the steering wheel of my life to you today. And then it continues after we make that commitment and that prayerful commitment as we allow him to realign our lives around his ways as described in these Beatitudes and today in particular in meekness. If we make that decision, and it is a choice, it's a free choice, we're allowed to go about our lives in the ways which we choose. God gives us that privilege. But if we yield to him and every day decide that we're going to yield to the moving of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of Scripture, and the presence of Jesus leading us, I believe our lives will begin to change radically. You see, there's three things we can do with a message like this. We can see it as information. So nice to know. We might have learned some new stuff from me today about meekness or about something else, or maybe not so much. Maybe you didn't learn much. But you can see it as information. It's nice to know but it's very easy to forget something that's just information. Secondly, we can see it as inspiration, where it's something that we get inspired about and think, yeah, I should really do that, but if we don't implement it and do something with it, it quickly fades away as well. But if we get to the place of implementation, where God's will starts being done in us first and then in our lives and in what we do, then those changes become transformational and we start to really change. Taking these things to heart and acting upon them will result in a really powerful thing happen. Number one, we will be powerfully changed. Number two, we will be profoundly changed. We'll be surprised at how different we are. And thirdly, we'll be changed permanently, never needing to live with a sense of regret about how we're doing spiritually, but having a quiet confidence that, God, you're really doing something amazing, and it sticks. So friends, as we move to a close today, I want you to, Think of a way to be praying. One of the ways to apply some of what we're talking about here today is to go back through 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, which I read a while ago in a slightly varied translation, and begin to pray into those things every day. Maybe we could pray something like this, every day like this. Lord, help me and empower me to be more like Christ in his meekness every day this week. Help me to become very patient with the people that I often lose my patience with. Help me to be very kind to those who aren't very kind to me. Help me to let go of those people that I'm so jealous about having things that I don't have. 
Help me to stop being envious of people that degrades into hating them just because they're enjoying life more than I am. Help me to never be boastful, to toot my horn just to somehow make me feel better about myself. And oh Lord, help me to not be so proud that I look down on anybody as less important or less significant than me. And Lord, help me to not be haughty. Forgive me for showing contempt for people that are different than me or people groups that are different than me or less than me. And Lord, help me put my needs second to your purposes in my life. And help me, God, if I've been rude and harsh to anyone to seek reconciliation, help me no longer be rude or harsh with anybody. And Lord, help me not to be thinking about demanding my own way every single day, but rather asking for your will to be done on earth as you've ordained it in heaven. Help me not to be irritable and touchy and easily angered and blaming others for my own emotions. And help me not to hold grudges anymore, holding on to unforgiveness and remembering what everybody's done wrong to me instead of forgiving it, forgetting it, and moving on as you've done with me. If that's resonating with you, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I want you to pray it along with me today. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm not by nature very gentle or meek. Lord, help me to be much more understanding of people and not so demanding. When people disagree with me, help me to not respond angrily, but to be gentle. When people let me down, help me to be gentle, not harsh or critical with them. Lord, I do truly want to be more like you. I do want to have a gentle answer that turns away anger and wrath, not stirs it up. Lord, help me to lower my voice when everyone else raises theirs. Lord, to those closest to me, those of my immediate family that I'm with day in and day out, help me to be gentle with them at all moments. I do want to be much more like Moses and Jesus with strength under control than the way I've been. Lord, help me be a light in your world to not speak evil of anyone and not engage in arguments no matter how compelling they may seem. Jesus, you said in your word that we, if we trust in you and take your yoke upon us, you, we would find rest for our souls. May it be so, Lord, for me and for us this day that we find that place of full contentment at your feet and in your presence. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.